If you have a Bible with you, please do turn to the first book of Timothy and chapter 6. If you're using one of the Red Church Bibles, it's on page 1194. If you'd like to borrow one of those Red Church Bibles, just please indicate uh, and one will be uh, brought to you. Um, While you are finding your place, some of you might remember the winter of 1978-1979. It was called the winter of discontent. Um, Graves weren't being dug, uh, refuse wasn't being collected, um, and uh, and it was pretty miserable days. And um, now it's being reflected in Hong Kong. Uh, the awful things that we're seeing going on in Hong Kong are being recorded now in their newspapers as the summer of discontent. If you go to our House of Lords and you watch them take votes, they don't say yes and no. They are divided into contents and not contents. Contentment seems to be an illusory thing. Dare I say, even in churches. The story is told of a person who was marooned on a deserted island for five long years on his own. And eventually, a passing ship saw his signal and came to rescue uh, that man. And he was explaining to his rescuers how he had been on that island on his own for five years, hadn't seen another soul. And yet the rescuers uh, could see that there were three shelters And he said, well, I thought you were on your own. Why are there three shelters on this island? And he said, oh, well, that's my home and that's my church. I said, yeah, well, what about the third one? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) Even in church, discontentment can be evident. This is what the Word of God says. We are beginning our reading here in in, uh, 1 Timothy Uh, Chapter 6, verse 3. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That is the word of God. Let's pray as Phil comes to open it up to us. Father, thank you for your word that it is a living word. 
Thank you that you are a God who wants us, each one of us, to hear your voice. And so now we want to commit our time, remaining time, to you. We pray with thankfulness for Phil. We ask that you have given him great joy and insight in his preparations for us, that we might leave here with great joy and insight over what you are teaching us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Andy. If you could have your Bible open to that passage, it would be a real help uh, to you this morning. If you don't have one, just throw a hand up in the air and a steward will bring uh, a Bible to you. Uh, Is there anyone who needs a Bible? Great, lovely. So open that up and we're going to look at it now. Just for those of you who are visiting and and for those of you fresh back from holidays, um, we're going through this series in the book of of 1 Timothy, which is simply how to do church together. Just to recap what we've done so far in the letter, Paul writes to Timothy to help Timothy sort out some issues in the Ephesian church because some false teachers had come and messed it up completely. So in the book's first couple of chapters, Paul challenges Timothy to faithfully preach the good news that he'd heard from the beginning, and to preach that good news in order to stop false teachers who were damaging the church. Then in the second section of the book, which is the one we've been looking at over the summer, Paul teaches Timothy how to lead the church into godly love towards one another and faithfully sharing the gospel. That's why chapter 6, verse 2, begins with the emphasis of what he's being taught, what he's taught so far. He tells Timothy, and look with me at uh, at verse 2 there, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. Paul's teaching has been gospel-orientated, and the gospel was to be the foundation of lives built on and firm in the love of Christ. That's the thrust of it. Essentially, as we saw last week, what he's looking for is that gospel-orientated life that stands out a mile. Whether that's the godly family or the godly slave or the godly master, that's why Paul urges Timothy to teach these things and insist on them. So in this final chapter, Paul begins to wrap up his letter. And what he does is he then does a bit of a recap of basically where he started That's why he goes to the issue of false teachers again. And once more, he highlights the dangers of their teaching. And in essence, he talks about contentment. Contentment with what God has given us through Jesus Christ. And it's a key challenge for us today because so many false teaching about God echoes the discontent and materialism we see in Paul's letter but also in our culture today. Just to illustrate that and illustrate how relevant it is for us and even for us as Christians this morning, let me ask this question. What are your ambitions for the next five years? Where would you like to be? What would you like to be doing? What do you dream about when your mind wanders for a few minutes? Now, what I'd like you to do is hold the answer to that question in your mind. Hold the answer to that question in your mind. Hold it as a picture, if you can. And let me compare your picture, your picture answer to that question, with this quote from Joel Osteen, 
an American prosperity preacher. Got it there? Good. Listen to this quote now. I believe God wants you to have money and pay your bills, to send your kids to college and to do charity work. There's the teaching we're supposed to be poor to show that we're humble. I don't buy that. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to live in health and not in sickness all the days of your life. I don't know whether I'm the only one in the room to be shocked at myself because of how closely my dreams and ambitions reflect Joel Osteen's prosperity idealism. For example, I want to be able to send my boys to university if that's what they want to do. I want to have enough money to live well. I want health, not sickness. And the worst thing about it is that when I was thinking about my ambitions for the next five years, what didn't cross my mind was the desire to spend more time in prayer. The desire to give more money to the growth of the gospel. The desire to read the Bible in a headlong pursuit of the knowledge of God. The truth is, Joel Osteen's message is the same message as that of our culture. Live your dreams. Fulfill your potential. And that can only be measured in terms of success and income rather than nearness to God and contentment in Him. And if we're not careful and awake to that false message and the message of our culture, we can find ourselves unwittingly working for their ends. And that's why our message this morning, our passage this morning is so relevant. You see, Paul looks at the false teachers of his day, he looks at the culture of his day, and he sees the dangers. The false teachers were modeling greed to the church through their false teaching and through their example, and the church was asleep to it. So we're going to look at this passage together and see how this passage challenges us to wake up. And the first point that Paul makes is that greed is often a sign of a false gospel. Look at verse 3 with me. 3 and 4. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Say it as it is, Paul. Um, Conceited and understand nothing. It's a massive contrast, isn't it? Paul, for the previous 30 years, had been proclaiming that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like him, and Timothy had been doing the same in Ephesus in the face of these false teachers who were full of themselves and full of their own false revelations. Why is Paul so animated in his description of these guys? Well, look at what they're doing in verse uh, verse, um, 4 and 5. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. It's a great list, isn't it? He deliberately changes the adjective that describes the two. Did you notice that? The true gospel of Christ in the previous verse is described as wholesome or sound. 
whereas the controversies of the false teachers are described as unhealthy or sick. The difference is like when you put your child to bed and they go down with a cold or flu overnight. And what was, lun- what was once a lovely, bubbly, healthy little person the previous night wakes up to be a completely different person the following morning. Their eyes are sunken, they're moaning, they're crying, they're shaking, their throat is sore, they're high maintenance, let's face it. And that's the contrast between the true gospel and the unhealthy one. And by contrasting the false teachers to the true gospel in this way, Paul wants us to see that the false teaching is utterly destructive for the church. It has no power. Rather, it drains the church of its power. The false teachers were drawing attention away from the gospel and binding people to controversies and quarrels and quibbles that had no focus on the saving gospel of Jesus. And that's why their message was so utterly unhealthy. There was no gospel in that message. There was no way of salvation being proclaimed. Rather, it was all about knowledge that puffs up, that creates an inner circle of those who are in on the know and an outer circle of people who feel they don't. They aren't. And these distractions are something that we can see in today's church. For some, the gospel can be lost in the teaching that the Bible holds hidden messages. Some Christians believe that by studying the numerology of Revelation and other apocalyptic passages in the Bible, you can discern times and dates and hidden codes that others aren't aware of. And it breeds a certain arrogance about those hidden depths. And it leads to a way of reading the Bible that basically says the gospel's not good enough. I have this special revelation through numerology and uh, and apocalyptic revelation. For others, the gospel message can be distorted by listening to the agenda of our world around us. What we find ourselves doing in this situation is just bending and, 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 and twisting and, 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 and submitting to the agenda of our culture and saying, okay, that's the culture. We'll give them what they want. The secular world tells us to live our lives without reference to God and, and we'll kind of bring that mindset into church. So Joel's Austin good, Joel Osteen's Joel good news is that you can live the best of your life now. You can be illness-free and prosperous because God wants to bless you and give comfort and prosperity. And here's the catch. God then becomes a means to an end. Do you see that? God ends up like a genie in the lamp. You rub the lamp hard enough and God will pop out and deliver all that you want. My comfort, my prosperity. And we love that message because, let's face it, life is tough. And the biggest thing we want from life is to stop, stop what we're all enduring. So Joel Osteen and the false teachers, well, they give you what you want. Just have to pay a little bit for it, though bit of a catch. In first century Ephesus, Paul wanted Timothy to understand and know that in the case of the false teachers, their teaching came out of their focus on money. They didn't teach the wonder and the magnificence of the gospel message. 
Why? Because they wanted money. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. These people have been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, the false teachers were there because the church was a means by which they could get rich. And Paul wants them to see the greed of the false teachers for what it was. Powerless distraction from the gospel that saves. And greed is often a sign of a false gospel, and it's still the case today. Do you know, last year on the Christianity Explored course, one of the guests told us how she had been put off church when her priest told her that if she were to give him some money, it would take years off the purgatory a dead relative had to endure. And yes, that is 21st century Britain. If we believe the sale of indulgences is dead, don't believe it. Christian music is big business, and whilst there are many musicians and composers who seek to glorify God by using their uh, musical gifts, there are many people cashing in on it because of the wealth it creates. One of the sickest things I've seen was on God TV in India a few years ago. The presenters were a well-dressed, uh, were a well-dressed white couple, and they were promising blessings in return for a purchase of a small vial of expensive miracle oil. And as I toured the churches in the area, I noticed that behind each pulpit, on the little shelf there, each, there was a, a, a vial of that expensive oil nestled, nestled on the shelf. It was extortion. It was a false gospel. And in that particular culture, it was a watered-down form of Hinduism. If you pay just a little bit of money and buy that little vial of, of oil, you get good karma. God will bless you, and you will become a prosperous and better preacher. That's what it represented. They are scenarios that wouldn't be out of place in Timothy's world. I hope it encourages us to pray for the church this morning. That firstly, everyone everywhere who teaches in the church would teach a true gospel of grace and not be swayed by the temptation to preach a false gospel message for the sake of getting more money. And pray that we would rather find our true contentment in the gospel message. So if greed is often a sign of, false, of a false gospel, Paul tells us that we can find contentment in the gospel. And that's our second point this morning. Find contentment in the gospel. Paul turns at this point to the passage to emphasize the truth of the gospel. And I love that contrast between five and six. The greed of the false teachers leads to merely material gain. It's transitory, it's passing, it's selfish, it's short-sighted, it's conceited. But then look at what he tells us the true gospel looks like in verse six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness is not the means to financial gain. The church is not there to acquire wealth or status or comfort or rights. Rather, godliness is the only gain that we can be content in. By godliness, Paul means the knowledge of the love of Christ. He means that intimate understanding that has won our freedom from sin and our place in his kingdom. Godliness means 
that we know the true value of God's gift through the cross. And you know, when we, when we, when we get that value, when it, when it hits us, when it, when it blows us away, the value of Jesus, it creates in us a massive loyalty, a, a huge love. Because Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. And that kind of godliness is not a means to an end. In and of itself, it is the highest value. That kind of godliness, that love for Jesus, is everything. And the question is, are we going to be content with that? You see, Paul uses that word contentment because he can see the discontent that the false teachers were modeling and sowing. And he wants them to see that discontent is such a dangerous master. If we're chasing money, we're never going to have enough of it. One German philosopher um, uh, said this about gold. Gold is like seawater. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you become. If we're chasing stardom, we'll eventually burn out or fade away. That's what Kurt Cobain wrote on his suicide note. If we're chasing the ideal family in this broken world, we have to realize that living our hopes and dreams through our children will never fully satisfy us. If we're chasing social media significance or fame, there will never be enough likes and follows. To chase the rainbow of contentment in this life ends with being a slave to what we're chasing. The question is, how do we reach the end of the rat race? How do we find contentment? Well, the commentator Philip Ryken said this, contentment is knowing that if I am not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. I'll say it again. Contentment is knowing that if I am not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. And Paul rams that point home. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. He wants us to see that each of us was born into this world naked and totally dependent on God's providence for food, clothing, warmth, affection, love, everything. From the very outset, from our very first breath. And when we die, we take none of it with us. When we die, stuff will not matter to us. I I heard uh, the story of of, uh, um, J.D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world at the time. When he died, uh, the, the family gathered around the lawyer who was going to read his will. And someone kind of asked the lawyer, um, how much has he left? You know, mentally wanting to divvy it up between everybody. Oh, how much could I potentially have here? And the lawyer, with, with real wisdom and sarcasm, simply said, he left everything. There is no point being the richest person in the graveyard if that's your ambition. Stuff comes, stuff goes. The bottom line is that God gives us enough to be fed and clothed and we're to be content with that. 
And therefore, this is the point. It's our spiritual condition that ought to be of more concern for us because godliness that comes through the Holy Spirit is what will count in eternity and shine. To allow discontent to be our master leads to an endless struggle for satisfaction. But if you're at the end of that struggle, then look to the cross. Look at the bread and the wine that we've just shared this morning. That represents Jesus' sacrifice that is the greatest declaration of love that has ever existed in this universe. Because there, there, the representation there tells us the God of the universe has come to us and to die for us so that we might know God's love personally. That's where we find the end of discontent. It's in the love of God. If you're hungry for success, look to the cross and find it there and you will see all the triumph you need for eternal life. If you're crying out for acceptance, it's there. If you're dissatisfied with your clothes, then look to the robes of righteousness because they are all you need. If you're wishing for more riches, how much richer can you be if Christ's love rests upon you? Isn't that deep down what we are all longing for? Isn't it the mind-boggling story of the infinitely rich God who sacrificed his riches and came into this world to save the prodigiously indebted ones so that they may inherit all the fullness of the incomprehensible riches of God? Isn't that what our dissatisfied hearts are longing for? Isn't that where we find our meaning, our rest, our soul contentment that renders the chasing after everything this world wants us to chase after useless? Isn't Jesus sufficient? Isn't Jesus our all, our everything, our magnificent saving one? Oh, to chase after anything and everything else. What are we up to? What are we up to? What are we up to? Paul wants us to see it. If there is ever any naming and claiming going on in this church, it's that we name ourselves the most impoverished, helpless individuals and claim the beautiful sacrifice of Christ as our own and plead his blood to bring us into his kingdom that his riches his riches might be lavished upon us paul wants us to find that contentment he wants us to know that gospel message that good news that he encourages timothy throughout the letter to preach there's the power of god brothers and sisters if we are discontent there's the power of god that rips us out of discontent and points us to the cross. Paul finishes on a warning about the love of money in the church. And he simply says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money 
have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Our, our culture thrives on that insatiable thirst for more. Our, our culture uses powerful tools to amplify that dissatisfaction. In our culture, the love of money is everywhere and it's deeply ingrained. And Paul just says it's, it's disastrous. It leads to destruction. That's a technical term, he says. That's a technical term that he uses for hell. So we have to ask ourselves, how badly are we infected? How badly are we infected? Well, let me ask some questions. When your mind goes into neutral, what do you think about? Is it your concerns about money, or do you drift into imagining what life would be like if you had a little more? The holidays, the cars, the house. When you hear we're talking about money at church, does your heart sink because you don't want to hear it? When you give, does it fill you with joy or do you begrudge it? Do you, do you delight to spend on others or on yourself? Do you quickly grow bored with your possessions? And lust after new things, phones, clothes, cars. Do you think that a purchase will cheer you up? Do you love owning things? Paul's point in these two verses is that it is that too often an eagerness for money destroys people spiritually. Paul's seen it. We've seen it, in our, it, we've seen it this morning in ourselves, if we're to be truthful. So let's listen to this warning this morning. It's hard, it's a hard, hard thing to be challenged with. And it's true to say that we all struggle with this insatiable thirst for more. But Paul's antidote to this is what lies at the heart of this passage the great gospel message of Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's run to the cross. Let's lose ourselves in the contentment that Jesus is sufficient. He is our all in all. And our true riches are in the good news that saves us and our Savior, who is Christ the King. Do you know, I'm going to finish it there. I think it's important to finish on the precious cross of Christ. Do you know, if, if you're struggling... Um, with all that we've spoken about this morning, please do come and speak to myself or, or, or one of the elders. Practically, if you're struggling with discontent, uh, just a very simple thing you can do is go to the, um, uh, go to the magazine rack um, in, in the foyer. Uh, there are some, some giving, uh, 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 giving forms 
you can start giving to this church, even if it's one pound a month. Make that your token pound. Lord Jesus Christ, I am so discontent with my universe. I know the antidote is to give and to rest in Christ. May this be my token. Or if you're slightly suspicious about me encouraging you to do that, find a charity. Find a good Christian charity and give. The antidote is giving. I realize that many of us are very poor. But we can still be discontent. Look to the cross. Let me pray. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are each of us discontent, in some way. And we ask, Lord God, that we would look to that rugged cross, that we would immerse ourselves in the love that you have poured out over us. And may our souls truly cry out in praise and honor to you. Because, Father God, we are astonished at the riches are, that, that are ours in Christ. We're astonished at the riches that he forsook in order for us to be brought into your kingdom. Father, may we preach that message to our souls. May you give us the strength and the determination to fight our discontent and to, fight, and to find our contentment in Jesus and the wonderful riches of his grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.